Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of fragrant oil and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with the hair of her head, kissing them and anointing them with the fragrant oil. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he said, say it. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she, with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I tell you, Her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I love that story. It's a beautiful picture of lavish, extravagant forgiveness and the joy that follows that. Uh, That's really our topic for tonight, the the joy of forgiveness, uh, the joy of living as forgiven people. Uh, So you turn back to to Psalm 51. It's on page 541, I think, in your Bibles. We're going to look at this psalm together. In your Bibles, it's got a prayer for restoration. That's not in the original, so you can cross that out. Uh, but the next bit is, uh, that's super title, uh, for the choir director, a Davidic psalm when Nathan the prophet came to him after he'd gone to Bathsheba. So before we read the psalm together, I want to give you the, the context for when David wrote this psalm and how he wrote it. So I'll just tell you David's story. It was a, a balmy spring evening when I walked out onto my balcony. And I looked around and I spotted her. She was so beautiful. And she was bathing on her balcony. I just meant a quick glance. But I kept glancing. And the glance turned to a stare, and the stare turned to a longing, and a longing turned to lust. And I thought, I must meet her. I want to have sex with her. I found out her name. Her name was Bathsheba. And I found out her husband, Uriah, was at war. And I was thinking, 
Oh, she's probably lonely. A bit of TLC. I'll go and care for her. And so I met her. And I slept with her. It was just the once. I thought we could just cover it up, you know. Can you imagine the, the headlines in a newspaper? Royal family in sex scandal. Have you ever heard that before? Bathsheba Gate. And then she came to me and she said, David, I'm pregnant. What? What do you mean you're pregnant? We only slept together once. Why don't you take precautions, I thought. And that moment when I realized that I was in deep, 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 deep trouble. And the guilt that started to come within me and the fear. My human brain kicked to action. I thought, oh, okay, okay, come on, come on, David. I saw that. I've got a great plan, Operation Cover-Up. How about we get Uriah, the husband, back from the battlefield? And he can sleep with his wife. He can go back to war. The baby will be born and we can just fake the date of birth and it will all be covered up. Except Uriah was an upright man, a godly man who refused to sleep with his wife whilst he was fighting on battle. And the fear and that deep-seated sense of dread and guilt that I'd be exposed as a sinner. So I had another plan. How about we, we get Uriah back from, from war and we kill him? Organize for him to be killed somewhere on the battlefield. And so she'll be a widow. And I could marry the widow and I could adopt the child and I could pretend that I'm doing her a favor and I'd be a hero. And that's what we did. I had Uriah killed on a battlefield and I married Bathsheba and I adopted the child and I thought I could just forget that episode of my life and pretend it never happened and just carry on my life. But have you ever had that deep-seated guilt that festers and festers? It's like gangrene. It eats away at you. And have you ever had that that fear, living with fear that your sin might be exposed and one day you might just wake up and someone will say, you did that. That's how I felt. Year after year after year, living with this lie, living with my sin. And then one day, God sent a prophet called Nathan. How kind of God that was. And Nathan looked me in the eye and said, David, why do you do it? God would have given you everything. And God is saying to you, David, why did you do such an evil in my sight? And, and, and that was like the penny dropped. You see, I thought that I could hide my sin from other people. I I thought that I could keep up the pretense of being this great king and this great ruler. And I'd forgotten. I'd forgotten who? God. I'd forgotten that ultimately I sinned against God. 
And I've forgotten that God sees everything. And I realized that for years, my relationship with God, my joy with my Lord, I was the one who said, a man after my own heart. And that joy in my relationship with my Lord, it is like it had been crushed by that oversense of guilt, carrying the guilt of my sin. And so I got down on my knees and I said, Lord, I'm a wretched sinner, please forgive me. That's the context of Psalm 51. You can read about it in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Uh, tonight we're going to talk about sin. I know we don't like talking about sin in church. Uh, when you hear the word sin, please don't just think of a list of wrong things. They're the sins. The sin is the, the heart attitude. The sin is a heart which says, God, I'm going to ignore you. I refuse to do what you tell me to do. I'm going to rebel against you. Who cares? In our psalm tonight, we're going to hear three different words for sin. The first word is the word rebellion. Uh, that, that word just means that you have you've overstepped the boundary. You've crossed the line. Uh, you know, in the Olympics, you have those javelin throwers. They come running up and they sort of... It doesn't matter how far they're throwing the javelin, does it? If their foot goes over the line, what happens? It's foul. Counts for nothing. Let me ask you, does it matter if it's a toe over the line or a foot over the line? It doesn't matter. And no matter how good that javelin thrower is, if he oversteps the mark, he is a failure. He's fouled. That's the word rebellion, overstepping God's line, God's perfect standard. And we do it all the time, don't we? Uh, the second word in the psalm is the word sin or the word iniquity. It's, it's a word which means you've, you've missed the target. It's the, the word of the, the archer. That is the, the sportsman, not the Radio 4 program. You know, the bow and arrow that shoots at the target? But what happens if they miss the target? Failure. It doesn't matter whether they miss by a millimeter or by a mile, does it? They've still missed the target. That, that is us and God. We've missed his target. We've missed, we failed to keep his perfect standards. It doesn't matter whether you missed it by a millimeter or a mile. We're sinners. And the third word is the word Guilt. And that's that kind of internal, oppressive, festering, conscious pricking feeling that you're weighed down by this, this, this reality that you know you offended God. And I think that's the word that we grapple with the most because often as Christians we, we lack joy in our Christian life. We lack joy and gladness in our walk with Jesus because... Because we're carrying around this guilt and we haven't left it at the foot of the cross. We refuse to be joyful in forgiveness. I know lots of churches talk lots and lots about the guilt of sin, but we've got to talk about the joy of forgiveness. And that's what this psalm does. See, see David realized that he couldn't hide his sin. He couldn't pretend it had never happened. He had to confess his sin. And when he did that, 
his joy of his salvation was restored. And that's my prayer for us as a church tonight as we hear this psalm, that as we confess our sins and as we accept God's forgiveness, the joy in our salvation will be restored. And we'd leave here, leave church tonight, glad again, light, rejoicing that the burden's been lifted and the guilt is gone. You ready to hear Psalm 51? Abby's going to read it. Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. According to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and give me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the, blood, from the guilt of bloodshed, God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. God, you will not despise a broken and humbled heart. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Thanks, Abby. Before we dive into the psalm, I'm going to ask you to spend a moment by yourself, just, just 30 seconds by yourself. Maybe bring to mind a, a particular sin that you're grappling with or a guilt that is festering within you. And then hear this psalm speaking to that particular guilt and that particular sin. Here's a quote from a man called Arthur Pink. He's a theologian, not the pop star theologian. He said, after grief for sin, there must be joy for forgiveness. Do you hear that? After grief for your sin, there must be joy for forgiveness. That's our two points tonight, grief for sin and joy for forgiveness. How do you grieve for your sin well? I've got two A's for you. Firstly, admit your sin to God. If you're going to grieve for your sin, you've got to admit your sin to God. That's what David does. He doesn't 
try and trivialize his sin. He doesn't try and sweep it under the carpet. He doesn't duck the responsibility. He calls a spade a spade and says, God, I did it. You see that verse 1? Be gracious to me, God, according to your unfailing love, according to your abundant compassion. And God, I don't deserve your forgiveness. I have no claim to your favor. I'm just coming to you, a faithful God, a loving God, a compassionate God, and I'm admitting my sin to you. Wash away my guilt. Cleanse me from my sin. If I'm conscious of my rebellion, my sin is always before me. Notice how many times the word my is there. Verse 1, my rebellion. Verse 2, my guilt. Verse 2, my sin. Verse 3, my rebellion. Verse 3, my sin. It's like David is working up and said, I'm going to stop blaming other people. I'm going to stop passing the buck. I'm going to own this. This is my sin. God, I've rebelled. I've overstepped the mark. I've missed the target. I've ignored you. I've flirted with this world. I've sinned. I love the second half of verse 3. My sin is always before me. It's like every waking moment a screensaver says, yep, I'm a sinner. I've messed up again. Got to learn to do that. Time with your God on your knees, just admitting the times when you have failed him. You know, we often say a, a confession in church. I just wonder how many times we sit there and we... You know that silence before the confession where you say, just bring to mind the things you've done before God that's wrong this week. And often time we think, oh, I can't really think of very much. We should be able to sit before our God and, and recognize all the many and various ways we failed him. A word spoken in anger. A, a thought of revenge that is not right. A lie. A lust. There's a great letter in a paper a few years ago. Let me read it to you. In line with the current trend to make Christianity what we want and what it's not, I demand that cricket now be played with an oval ball, a baseball bat, goalposts, and 17 players on each side. My team must also be allowed to make up the rules as we go along. And to keep me happy, I insist that we must still call the game cricket. This despite the fact that countless others still want to and do play cricket according to the old legalistic doctrine with 11 players aside, a leather and a willow. God broadly gives us the liberty to do what we like, but not the freedom to change his word. And I love that letter because it basically says, who are we to... to change God's word? Who are we to change God's commands? How dare we rewrite the rules because it suits us? Uh, when you admit your sin to God, that time on your knees, sort of staring in the mirror going, yep, I failed again. I'm not going to blame my parents. I'm not going to blame my hormones. I'm not going to blame my diet. I'm not going to blame the dog. I'm blaming me. That's what David did. David didn't hide behind the screen of all the good things he'd done and all the bad things he hadn't done. He just said, God, I did it. Can I encourage you to spend time with your God, confessing, admitting? 
Uh, he says down in verse 5, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. He, he's not saying he was as bad as he could be. He just says he's born with a natural bias towards doing the wrong thing. Uh, but the shocking, I think, in this psalm is verse 4, isn't it? Uh, David says, against you, God, you alone I've sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you're right when you pass sentence and you're blameless when you judge. And I read that verse and I go, hang on a second. Against you, you alone I've sinned? Uh, surely he sinned against Bathsheba. Of course he did. And surely he sinned against Uriah. He murdered him. Of course he did. And he must admit to those people he did the wrong thing. We must always admit to each other when we've done the wrong thing. But ultimately, he sinned against God. He sinned against his maker, the holy, pure, righteous God. And until you bring God into your picture, sin for you will just be a moral problem. Whereas sin is actually a theological problem because it breaks your relationship with your maker. If you've ever seen the, um, the footage of the 1966, uh, I was about to say soccer, football World Cup, it's about the only thing England have ever won. There's this great footage of Bobby Moore, who is the England captain. And he's climbing the steps to receive the trophy and to shake hands with the Queen. And if you watch this footage, he walks the steps and he's doing this the whole time. And he was interviewed after and said, why did you keep on rubbing your hands on your shorts? He said, all I could see was these pearly white gloves of the Queen. And all I could see was my dirty, filthy, grubby hands. And the thought of shaking hands with those pearly white gloves, it was just too much for me. And you've got to see your sin like that. Before a holy God, you're not perfect. You're filthy. You're dirty. So just admit it. We go out in church, you know, if we just admitted to each other. And we're not perfect. I don't know what your issues are. Hatred, envy, jealousy, adultery, violence, pride, lust, lying, whatever it is. Time on your knees with your God. Admitting your sin. I love this quote from Lutzer. He says, forgiveness is always free. But that doesn't mean that confession is always easy. Sometimes it's hard, incredibly hard. It's painful to admit your sins and entrust them to God's care. Step number one, admit. Step number two, ask. Ask to be cleansed. Can you imagine that if you went home tonight and you spotted this dirty, filthy stain on your, on your shirt or on your, on your pants? And you, go, you, you said to yourself, oh, that's filthy. And there's the washing machine with the detergent, ready to clean it, ready to cleanse it, ready to wash it, ready to get rid of it. But you just can't be bothered to put it in the washing machine. How stupid is that? You see, David doesn't just admit his sins. He actually asks for forgiveness. He asks for cleansing. He, he comes before the one who he knows is loving, who he knows is compassionate, and he gets on his knees and says, forgive me, wash me, cleanse me. Do you see that in verse 1? Be gracious to me, God. 
I need your love again, God. I need your mercy again, God. I need your compassion again, God. Uh, Verse 2, wash me, wash away my guilt. Put me in the washing machine with the strongest detergent and cleanse me, God. Wipe away every last stain, every hint of sin. Get rid of it, God. Look at verse 7, purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Uh, Do you guys know what hyssop is? Hyssop is a plant. And the context there is Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, if you had a leper, so a leper is somebody who's got a skin disease, and a leper is outcast from the community. They're, they're shut off from the temple, so they can't meet with God, and they're shut out of the community, so they can't meet with God's people because they're unclean. In the Old Testament, the priest would get uh, animal's blood and a plant called hyssop, and they would dip the hyssop into the blood And they would go to the leper and they would sprinkle the the leper with blood. And it's horrible. It would stink. It would stain. But if you've been washed in the blood of the hyssop, you accept it back into the temple. You accept it back into the community. You're, You're restored. You're reconciled. You're forgiven. And David comes before his God and says, Purify me with hyssop. And it's paradoxical, isn't it, when you're covered in blood. But God sees you as whiter than snow. Now, on what basis could David come before his God and ask for forgiveness? Look at your Bibles, verse 1, according to your faithful love, according to your compassion. That's what, what David knew about God, that God was loving and God was compassionate. That's all David knew, but he still had the confidence to come before his God and ask for forgiveness. Let me ask you the same question. On what basis can you ask, come before God and ask for forgiveness? Well, God hasn't changed, has he? God is still loving. God is still compassionate. What more do we have? We have the blood of Jesus, don't we? We don't ask God to purify us with the blood of hyssop. The blood's already been shed. And if you have hidden under the blood of Jesus, if you're covered in the blood of Jesus, this is the paradox, isn't it? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. If you allow yourself to be covered in the red blood of your Savior, then you can approach God with confidence and ask for forgiveness. Because Jesus paid it all. So friends, please admit your sin. Please ask for cleansing. There's a sense of desperation here for David. Uh, Verse 9, turn your face away from my sins. God, I, I know my sins abhor you and repulse you and make you want to vomit. So hide your face and blot out my guilt. I need a new heart, God, verse 10. Create me a clean heart, a new heart. Don't just patch me up, change me totally, he says. That's grieving over sin. Admit your sin and ask for forgiveness. It was D.L. Moody who said this. The voice of sin is loud. But the voice of forgiveness is louder still. 
The voice of sin is very loud, but the voice of forgiveness is louder still. So as we grieve for our sin, we must, we must, we must have joy and forgiveness. How do you do that? How do you have joy and forgiveness? Two A's for you again. So we've admitted, we've asked. We accept forgiveness. We accept that God has forgiven us. Do you notice the extraordinary confidence in this psalm? Right from verse 1, be gracious to me, God. Down to verse 7, purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. It's the imperative there, I will be clean. I am clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than the snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you crush rejoice. He's saying, I'm forgiven because he was forsaken. God will accept me. God has accepted me. God has forgiven me. He prays in verse 11, don't banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, of course, David has seen God take the Spirit from Saul, but we live post-cross, so the Spirit lives in us. There's nothing that we can do that would cause God to take the Spirit from us if we're still trusting in Jesus. He says, restore the joy of your salvation, verse 12. Do you see that, verse 12? He feels like his salvation has suffered, has been joyless because of his guilt and because of his sin. And maybe that's you tonight. Because of your guilt, because of your burden of sin, you feel like the joy of your salvation has been taken from you. But when you approach God and you accept that God has forgiven you, it's like a a lightness in your step. It's like joy in your heart. Because you are forgiven. I am forgiven. I'm going to praise you. I'm going to praise you, he says. Verse 13, I will teach you about about your ways. I'll talk to other people about your salvation and forgiveness and sinners will return to you. Let me say, friends, I do hope you have accepted that God has forgiven you. If you believe in Jesus, there's nothing that you have done that he will not forgive you for. Nothing that you can do that he won't forgive you for. Let me ask you, when when did God forgive you of your sins? When does he forgive your sins? He's not waiting for you to get on your knees before he forgives you. Forgiveness was won at Calvary 2,000 years ago. At Calvary, forgives one for you, for all your sins, past, present and future. It's all been covered by the blood of Jesus 2,000 years ago. He paid for it all. At Calvary, he paid for your gossip. At Calvary, he paid for your slander. At Calvary, he paid for your lying. At Calvary, he paid for your lust. At Calvary, he paid for your hatred. At Calvary, he paid for your bitterness. At Calvary, he paid for everything. What he's waiting for you to do is just sit down and acknowledge and ask. So accept it. And I say that because I do fear a lot of us as Christians, we... We wander around way down by guilt. It's like we've got this backpack and we just feel guilty the whole time. And being a Christian means that, yeah, your backpack is full. Don't mishear me. And you'll fill up your backpack again tomorrow. By this time tomorrow night, your backpack will be heavy and full again. 
But if you're a Christian, it's like God comes to you and he just takes that backpack off you and says, let me take that from you. And he puts it at the foot of the cross. He leaves it with Jesus and says, Jesus paid for that. So please don't wander around weighed down by your guilt. It's a joy of being a believer. It's a joy of being a, a brother or sister in Christ. We are forgiven. Yes, of course we're sinners. But what are we? We are forgiven sinners. So accept God's forgiveness. And then lastly tonight, adore. Adore your saviour. See that down in verse 14? Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You don't want a sacrifice, or I'd give it. You're not pleased with a burnt offering, God. The sacrifice of pleasing to God is a broken spirit. God, you will not despise a broken and humbled heart. We can't offer God anything. Because Jesus offered it all. He is the perfect sacrifice. And when you realize that, when you realize you stand forgiven because of the blood of Jesus, your tongue wants to sing of your righteousness. Your your mouth wants to declare the praise of your Savior. You see, as Christians, we should be marked by joy and gladness. And our lips should be singing about our Savior. And we should be telling each other about our Saviour. And so when you're talking to a brother or sister who really is weighed down with sin and really is grappling with your sin, what are you going to say to them? Oh, please don't trivialise it. Please don't trivialise sin. Of course it hurts and angers God. But remind them about Jesus. Make sure they run back to Jesus. And make sure that they leave with this joy in their step and this lightness Because they're free. Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. Because your debt's been paid. It's been paid in full. By the blood of Jesus. I don't know what you're grappling with. I don't know what what your habitual sin is. I don't know what you're going to do tomorrow. I do know by tomorrow night you'll have a long list of things you need to confess. So get on your knees. Admit. And ask. And then accept. And then, let us adore him, shall we? Let me pray. I'm going to give you a moment to either admit or to ask for forgiveness. Or maybe you're here tonight, you just need to accept that you are forgiven been carrying around the guilt for so so long it's been eating you up just just leave it at, at calvary and accept forgiveness we're going to say this confession together i'll say the first half you you respond Gracious God, we've come to see our lives fall far short of your glory. Have mercy and forgive us. You've given your son first and poured out your spirit, but we still fail to return your love with all our heart. Have mercy and change us. Too often we're selfish and proud. 
ignoring you, Lord, and neglecting others. Have mercy and cleanse us. When we don't truly trust and obey you, we're overwhelmed by self-pity, fear, and worry. Have mercy and deliver us. In Christ, we're given a sure hope and a secure love, yet we follow the false hopes and desires of this world. Have mercy and renew us. Father, through the redeeming death of your Son, by your Spirit and through your Word, enable us to follow you with joy. All this we ask, confident of your faithfulness and love. Amen.